Well, good afternoon. It is good to be back with you as we are here worshiping our God together. And it has been a beautiful day to be able to spend with you doing just that. Another an opportunity that we have to open up God's Word and to study from it. As you may have noticed from an email that went out a couple of weeks ago, uh, the plan for this evening is John and I are going to uh, do another question and answer period that we have done uh, a couple of times, certainly in the past. And this format we usually have put in play once or twice a year. But I do want to add, before we get started tonight, uh, there is in that back foyer from this one a, a box that has uh, paper and it has pencils and it has questions, uh, a little slot that you can put those things in. You don't have to wait for uh, specific periods like this to write down a question and and toss it in there. Uh, we check that box regularly, both John and I, both of us do. And, uh, and if it's a question, a lot of times may help us to think about needs to be covered in the entirety of a sermon or a lesson and, or maybe something that can be talked about even immediately. So I want to add that that's available at all times that you could put a question in there, and even more so than that. If you've ever got a question biblically, a question in any capacity, I'm willing to have that conversation at any moment. And I know John is as well. I'm comfortable enough to speak for him, at least on this topic, that uh, if you've got a question and you want to have a conversation or shoot us an email, we'd be willing and very open to have a conversation anytime about anything biblical that you want to talk about. But we do have some questions to cover tonight. We actually are going to uh, cover them. Uh, I've got uh, a question, just three questions we're going to cover tonight. I'm going to cover one question here in my time, and then John will cover a couple of questions. And so the question that I'm going to cover tonight is in, in a lot of ways about institutionalism what it is, what the Bible has to say about it. It's a question we've actually had for quite some time, just kind of sitting on it a little bit, uh, waiting for this opportunity. But it's a good question, and it really fits well with where we are now because when uh, Brother Salee was here and talking about the work uh, that we are supporting in Zimbabwe, he, he referenced institutionalism several times. And maybe that was a phrase that was thrown out that you heard, and maybe you know exactly what that is and you're well-versed, and you could be up here answering the question. Or maybe it's something you, you didn't know what that was. And, and so it was a question that we had, and so we're going to spend a few minutes to talk a little bit about it. We're going to talk a little bit, and the way I'm going to attack it is uh, we're going to try our best to define it in some way to make sure we're all on the same page about what it is and what we're talking about, and then most importantly, what the Bible has to say about it. Because that's the key to all of these questions that we get, all the answers that we give. It doesn't make a difference what Jeremy thinks about things. It makes a difference what God thinks about things. And we've got to make sure that what I think is in line with what God thinks. That's what Bible study is all about. And if I've got to push aside any past thoughts or any biases even that I have, and if God is thinking something differently than the way that I think, I need to be the one to adjust my thinking to match what God has to say. And so let's spend a few minutes and talk about this idea of institutionalism. So uh, let's try to define it. We're just going to go to an English definition to begin from Webster's. Um, uh, by the way, of just institution, 
it is something like this, an organization or establishment instituted for some public, educational, or charitable purpose. That's just kind of the definition. Now, the question becomes, whether an institution is divine, the easy question is, who's designed it? Is an institution divine or is an institution human? It comes down to who designed it. So, for instance, the church. The church is a divine institution. Why? Because God designed the church. God designed the church. He put the plan in place and set the purpose in line for what the church is to be. That's the purpose, and that is the design that we have from God. And so when we start to think about this idea and we start to use the phrase institutional, here's maybe a biblical kind of working definition that we're going to use this afternoon. It is this, the doctrine or practice of a church sending money to an institution of some kind to carry out some work. Now, this is a definition I like because it visually gives us the idea. Think about it this way. The difference between me giving money to John versus me giving money to Tim to give to John. You see, those things are not the same thing, right? If I give my money to John because I owe him some money, I know he's getting that because I'm making all the decisions in that situation. But if I owe money to John and I give it to Tim to give to John, Tim's now making decisions with my money. He, he may give it to John. He may not give it to him at all. He may pocket some of them and give a little bit of it. Well, I don't know. He's now making decisions. So I want you to be thinking about it in those simple kinds of ways. And then biblically, what becomes the key? So in the past, some common examples of such, in, such institutions have been things like missionary societies or orphans' homes or nursing homes or hospitals. These institutions set up to do good work that churches would send their money to to then do the good work for them. And so the question then becomes, who, who does God expect to get the work done? Does God expect the church to get the work done? Or does God expect these other institutions to get the work done for them? So when we begin to think about it in those simple kinds of ways, I think this concept, which can become complicated because man complicates it, simplifies itself. Because the easy understanding of that is God expects the church to get its work done. See, the church has work that God has employed it, has asked it to get done. Work in areas of evangelism or areas of edification or even in areas of benevolence. But it is the church's responsibility to get that work done. Not someone else's responsibility. It's the church's responsibility. So we begin to think about it in those kinds of ways that helps. And so when we start to think about this and not just define it, but more importantly what the Bible has to say about it, We ask that question, well, what does the Bible have to say about institutionalism? I'll give you the quick answer, and not really trying to be sarcastic about it in any way, but the quick answer to what the Bible has to say about institutionalism 
is nothing. Because the institutionalism isn't a biblical concept. Now, there are concepts biblically that can help us, and we're going to turn to a few of those passages. But it isn't a biblical concept because it's not in the design that God has in line for his church. You see, when you open up the pages of the New Testament, you will not find a single example of New Testament churches sending or giving money to human institutions as a way to carrying out their own work of evangelism or edification or benevolence. There's no example of that. So the question becomes, well, what, what then do we see by way of example? Well, I'm going to give you three things as we kind of bring this question to a head. Three things, biblically, in way of benevolence, that the church can do with the funds that they have. There are three examples that we see biblically. And the first is this. You have a congregation caring for its own members. That is a biblical example of something that the church can do with the, the treasury, the money that it has, that we collect on the first day of the week. We, we, are, we are tasked. We have a responsibility to care for one another. And we see examples of that. Let's take a look at a couple of them. They're kind of right in a row, so they'll be easy to get to. But the first is in Acts chapter 2, the very outset, the very beginning of the Lord's church. We see this happening from the very beginning. Certainly this attitude that the church has to take care of itself. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 44. It says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So you see an example of how this operates. You have a church taking care of its own. Another example of that, one page over, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, it says that the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither did anyone say, anyone say that if any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor, uh, uh, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed them to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who also was named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's an example of the church helping itself, caring for its own members. One other example of that, Acts chapter 6 now, one other page over, beginning in verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. 
Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And here's an example here in Acts chapter 6 where you have here among this congregation widows that were in need and the apostles saying we need to take care of that. And so here's an example, an example of a church caring, a congregation caring for its own members. And when we do that, and we do, that's a biblical thing. It's a biblical thing because we have example of that in the pages of the New Testament. Secondly, Another example that we have are churches sending to one church that is unable to fulfill the needs of its members. Let's read the passage, and I'll give you an example of that. In Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, as the Apostle Paul is writing this book, he has some things to say about other brethren. And he says in Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 25, he says, I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. And so here it is that money was sent to members, to saints, to God's people in another place. And so here an example of churches sending aid, monetary things to one church that's unable to fulfill the needs of its members. We do that here at Trader's Point, biblically do that all the time, all the time. We've done that on an ongoing basis as we do from month to month, and we've done that in the past on one particular thing, such as an area of the country that has a a terrible storm, and we hear the story of a, a congregation that is really struggling, and now we have a biblical example to be able to help them here in the page of the New Testament. The third way, a church sending to several churches if those churches have saints in need. Acts chapter 11 is an example of that. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. It says, in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. (coughs) Excuse me, and so now you see the example of a church sending to several churches if those churches have saints in need. So let's talk about the keys of what we learn biblically about this kind of thing couple of things. The first is this. Biblically speaking, the example of aid being sent by this congregation or any congregation, number one is aid sent to God's people, saints. Every example is that. Every example is that. And secondly, in every example, you see that church taking care of their own responsibility. There's no need for a human organization to take care of the work that God has given, say, this congregation. It's our responsibility 
to handle those kinds of things. So the question becomes, you know, things like orphans' homes or things like hospitals or things like nursing homes, are those bad things? Are those terrible institutions? Are those institutions that don't deserve aid or don't deserve help? I wouldn't say anything like that. They do deserve help. They do need aid. They do need help. But not from the Lord's church. Not from the Lord's church. So here's a question for you. The question is this. Can the church, can the church do the work of God that he has assigned it to do in the areas of evangelism, edification, and benevolence, without the help of human institutions? Can we do the the work that God has given to us to do? If we choose to use a human institution, well, we're saying, I can't. We can't do that. We can't do the work that God has given us to do. And then now we then have to say, then God has given us something to do that we cannot do or that we won't do or that we don't want to do. And all of those things sound bad, right? All of those things sound bad. So the second question is this, is the church all sufficient to do God's work? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. So we need to make sure for us here at Traders Point specifically, we need to make sure that we are the church that does the work of the church by the simple organization that God has given to us. And it would behoove us to focus on what we have going on here to make sure that we are following the design in all aspects, biblically, that God has for his church. And when it comes to institutionalism or the doctrine of institutionalism, That is against God's plan. That is adding to what God has put in place. And so for us as the Lord's church, we need to make sure we're doing it the Lord's way. And that is the exact same thing for every aspect of the life that we live. Making sure that I am doing things the way that God has designed it to be. I'm simply not in a position. You can answer this for yourself. I do not feel comfortable. And I feel I am simply not in a position to question God's plan or design about anything. Now, you answer that for yourself. But for me, up here, publicly, in my life privately... I don't feel like I'm in a position to question God's purpose or plan in any capacity, this one included. So it's an interesting concept. Uh, Certainly it's an interesting question, one that for the Lord's church has caused big problems in the past. Let's make sure those problems don't exist here for sure. And they won't if we simply follow God's way unquestioning. And that's how you deal with a concept like this or a question like institutionalism.
John's got two easy ones after this. We'll let him go. Well, he's not entirely wrong. But I think they're two uh, interesting questions, two very different questions for sure uh, than what was just discussed. Uh, But the first one is up on the screen behind me. And with both of these questions, um, I want to make sure I I just make it clear up front. I did reword some of the questions. And so if you're the one that submitted this question, you're like, that's not what I sent them. I tried my best to get the gist of the question while at times shortening it a little bit um, to make it a little bit easier for us to grasp. So here, here was the question, in essence, that was sent. If a person's mate, through accident or other health issues, were to become incapacitated to the point of being brain dead or kept alive only via life support, would the body be considered dead and the spouse therefore permitted to remarry at that time? And so here's what I want to do with this question. I think the answer to this question can be very easily found within Scripture. The reason that I appreciate a question like this is because we cannot talk enough about the sanctity and the importance and the permanency of marriage. And so anytime a question like this gets submitted, where it opens the door for us to open up the Bible and to talk about God's plan for marriage, we want to take that opportunity. And that's exactly what this question does. And specifically, when it comes to the topic of death within a marriage. And so I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as Paul is writing to the Christians in Corinth, really, uh, most of this chapter, at least the first half of it anyway is dedicated to stressing just how important marriage is, which shouldn't be a surprise to any of us because the idea of marriage, the unity that is found when a man and a woman enter into a marriage relationship, it dates all the way back to the beginning. God created this from the very beginning, and Scripture supports God's views on marriage from the very beginning. And so when Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth, he sees a need to continue what God has already begun throughout time to stress just how important marriage is. And so he does that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 by addressing some basic principles as it pertains to the marriage relationship. But specific to this question, we can look at verses 39 and 40 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to see what Paul has to say about the idea of marriage and death. So verse 39, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. And so Paul's teaching as it pertains to the husband-wife relationship when it comes to death is very clear. That if a spouse dies, then the living spouse is free to remarry at that time if they choose in the Lord. The teaching on that is pretty clear. What this really tells us is that while the marriage bond does not continue beyond death, 
it continues up until that point and not before. And so whatever the situation is, the very unfortunate situation in which this question perhaps stemmed from, if your spouse is still alive, that is your spouse. And there, there is no other way to answer that question. To do otherwise would be to question God's wisdom for the permanency of the marriage bond. There is no human relationship that God has placed more emphasis on than a husband-wife relationship. It is to be protected. It is to be enjoyed. It is to be defended at every turn as long as we are alive. And so to answer this question in this situation, no, this individual would not be permitted to remarry in the eyes of God because their spouse is still alive and therefore that marriage bond is still intact. And if the spouse were to pass, then as Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth, that spouse would then be permitted to remarry in the Lord and they could do that at that time. Question number two, in the age of social media, how do we as Christians balance the directive to live a quiet and peaceable life, taking that from 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11, with the temptation to constantly share every detail of our lives on the variety of platforms that are always at our disposal? And so since the individual that submitted this question referenced 1 Thessalonians Specifically, I'm going to ask you to turn over there with me, and let's just read the entirety of the context of this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Read with me beginning in verse number 9 of 1 Thessalonians 4. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and work with your hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. So in this passage, what we see is that there is some instruction, there's some encouragement being given to love and to even increase in that love, to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work hard. And you do that so that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. And so, as it pertains to this question... I think it is fair to acknowledge specifically this idea of living a peaceable life, this idea of living a quiet life, that because of the day and age in which we live, that there is a very real temptation to lead a very loud life and to lead a very nosy life. And to do so because all of us carry around in our pockets our own personal megaphone. And that own personal megaphone is connected to everyone else's own personal megaphone. And so as a result of that, there is a temptation 
at our disposal at all times to live loudly and to live in such a way in which we are seen frequently. And let me give you an idea of some of the temptations that can come from that. Those types of temptations can lead us to have a false sense of importance because we are under the guise that everyone wants to know what's going on in my life at all times. It can challenge our humility because I can make myself look great, sound great, and make my life seem great so that everyone else can see all of those things. It can challenge our resolve to live peaceably with all men, as Paul instructed us to do in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. Divisiveness and contentiousness and argumentation, it's what these platforms are literally built upon. They thrive and they need divisiveness. They need arguments. They require us to go back and forth with one another on things. And the louder you do that, the louder the whole platform becomes in our lives, in our eyes, and in the minds of those around us. However, those platforms can also provide us with useful tools. We have the ability to communicate with one another, not just locally, but around the world in ways that were previously unavailable to us. We have the ability and the opportunity to share the gospel in different ways and on different platforms so that others can hear and learn and come to know about God. It can also be a source of very innocent fun and entertainment and even education at times. And so, as you begin to think about both the very real challenges and temptations that social media can put in front of us, as as Christians we seek to live quiet, peaceable lives, and you also see the potential benefits that exist with some of these platforms, then the conclusion that we come to is that it's just like everything else that man gets our hands on. It can be good and serve a valuable purpose, and it can be evil and a source of temptation and a source of disruption and corruption in our lives. And so it isn't necessarily the platform, but then what we choose to do with it. Because at the end of the day, the directive that we get from God is to live a quiet life, minding our own business, and to live at peace with all men. Those are directives from God. And if social media can exist in your life while you hold fast to those directives from God, great. If social media cannot exist in your life while you hold fast to those directives, then it must go. Now, there are some very real temptations, even addictions, 
that can be formed, that can be difficult to break. But I hope as we think about just how important it is to read the pages of the New Testament, to read what God wants us to be, behave the way that he wants us to behave, we have to see that nothing can be allowed to pull us away from God. Nothing can be allowed to pull us away from God. We must hold fast to his commands, to his statutes, to his directives. And so social media has to be one of those things that is put on the cutting block. And we have to make a decision with it. Can I live a quiet, peaceable life, minding my own business, living at peace with all men, building and strengthening my relationship with God, with social media in my life? And if the answer is yes, go for it. But be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. And if it means making some difficult decisions about how you're going to manage those platforms, be willing to make those difficult decisions because you recognize just how important it is to live a life that aligns with God's will, to be the kind of person that he wants us to be. That's what, that's what this is all about. That's what, when Jeremy was talking about institutionalism, we are trying to be the church that God wants us to be. And I am trying to live my life the way that God wants me to live my life. Everything else, everything else has to work around that. And so whether it's social media or anything else that may be hindering your relationship with God, whatever it might be, you need to take a long, hard look at that. Like we talked about this morning, there is nothing in this world worth losing your soul over. So as we wrap things up tonight, I want to leave you with that very thought. I want you to think about the relationship that you have with God. I want you to think about how you're living your life. And whether we're talking about 1 Thessalonians 4 and Romans 12, or whether we're talking about other directives and commands found in the New Testament, are you aligning your life with God at every turn? Are you submitting your will to his? Are you humbling yourself before him and molding your life to look more and more like him day in and day out? That's who he created us to be. He created us in his likeness. He created us in his image so that we could be like him. He wants us to be the kind of people that love him and serve him and long for him this side of eternity so that we can then live with him for all of eternity in heaven. That's what he wants for every single one of us. And he's given us another opportunity this evening to consider what our relationship is like with God. Where do we stand before him? Does our life reflect the love that we proclaim to have for him? And if we need to make changes, if we need to make some adjustments in our life, he's given us an opportunity to do that. And he's given us a wonderful group here to support us as we strive to be more and more like God every day. So if you're here this evening and you need some help in your spiritual walk with God, we can pray for you. If you've never become a child of God, there's an opportunity being presented for you this evening to be baptized for the remission of your sins, to become adopted into his family, 
this very evening. So if we can help you in any way, please come to the front and let us know how as we stand and sing.